If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, we're going to return to the chapter that we've been uh, chipping our way through, and uh, this morning's message is on feeding the ox. We're going to be doing a little animal, spiritual animal husbandry. Somebody looked at the title to the bulletin today. It said, Happy Father's Day, Feeding the Ox. Um, and those were supposed to be separate. Um, not trying to imply anything that uh, all fathers are oxes, but um, even though we may sometimes eat or act like them. When I was living in Idaho, periodically we would drive up to the northern part of the state and and uh, in the area around Lewiston, there is big hills, just big rolling hills. And it's a perfect place to grow grain. And so a lot of oats and wheat are grown there. And in the spring, if you go there, you'll find just the hills are just solid green. And it looks like a green ocean. And when the wind blows, you can see just the wind blow on the grain. It's really beautiful. Later on in, in the fall, towards the end of summer, um, everything, of course, has turned yellow, golden, yellow color. And uh, all the, the heads of grain are all bending the stalks over. And it, it's a whole different, it's a yellow, golden sea. And uh, if you go by at just the right time and you get to see them harvest, you get to see these giant pieces of, of farm equipment called combines. And, and they um, chop up the... Uh, the wheat and it goes into the machine and I don't know what goes on inside of there, but um, it usually spits out a bale of uh, straw type stuff and the stalks come out and then out a chute out the one side and there's usually a dump truck driving alongside the, the combine. Uh, grain, just pure clean grain just gets shot right out into the truck and it's really uh, it's amazing. It's amazing to wonder how many hundreds and thousands of acres just one combine can do. Well, in the New Testament times, they did not have combines. They wished they did, but they didn't. And instead, laborers would have to be sent out into the field. Those laborers would have to harvest the grain by hand, tied up in sheaves, little bundles. And those bundles would then be hauled into town or to wherever the, the threshing floor was. And on the threshing floor, they would um, create a pivot. And on that pivot would have a bar. And there would be like a round circle with a curb. And inside that um, circle, there would oxen would be led, and uh, oftentimes these big wooden sledges would be made, and people, the workers, would stand in the sledges, or they'd put weights on them, and they would drive the oxen around and uh, throw the sheaves of wheat in front, and that grinding motion would knock all the grain loose from the stalks. Then they would, would uh, with pitchforks and things like that, they would take up all the, the chaff and all the straw and then rake up all the, the wheat that they could and, and put that into baskets. And then they would have to winnow the wheat by throwing the wheat up into the air on a windy place. And, of course, the temple mount um, that was purchased by David was a threshing floor, and they would throw up the wheat, and the wind would blow, and all the chaff and the light material would go on. The wheat being heavy would fall back down, and pretty soon you'd have nice, clean wheat. Well, 
This morning, we encounter a text where Paul gets into this whole idea of laborers and oxen threshing, and he uses it to describe um, an important principle, and that is the principle of, in a spiritual way, feeding the ox. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look at the ox and who he is and how he's to be fed and the church's responsibility in all of that. The ox in the text before us is a representative of elders or shepherds or overseers. And uh, we have already studied this in some detail. We've learned that, that an elder is a shepherd and a shepherd is a pastor and a pastor is an overseer. Um, there is no difference. If you have the King James overseer is translated bishop, there's not really um, a difference between those. A lot of times in church, uh, uh, you know, we make a distinction between, oh yeah, well that's Pastor Jack, and then that's, you know, so-and-so who is just an elder. No, if you are an elder, you are a pastor, you are an overseer, um, that's what you are. There is no distinction, although culturally we make those distinctions, the Bible does not know that distinction. So Paul, knowing that Timothy needs to... um, take care of elders, especially a certain category of elders, gives him some instruction. Now, we've already noted from chapter 3 the qualifications of an elder. Then in chapter 4, basically the ministry tasks of an elder. Now, we are going to look at the caring for of elders. And we will address several issues, Paul does, as we go through this section in verses 17 through 25. So Paul knows that Timothy needs to establish leaders in the church and that he needs to be able to take care of those leaders. And he has just finished talking about widows and widows indeed. And the widows indeed were a special class of widows that were to receive financial support from the church. Well, in the same way, now that he is addressing elders, there are elders and kind of elders indeed, but um, he says they are elders who rule well, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. And so he is addressing the financial support of the certain subcategory of elders in the church. Not all elders receive pay. Some elders, because um, they um, do not want to receive pay or because of their giftedness or their desires, um, do not have a desire to uh, work full time in the ministry, and those would not receive pay. But others who, because they distinguish themselves in different areas and because they're faithful and gifted in certain areas, God calls the church to support them so they can devote themselves to the ministry and the exercise of their spiritual gifts. So if you have your Bible, look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, and follow along as we read down through verse 25. Starting at verse 17, Paul says this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. 
Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share in the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. From these first two verses in this section, verses 17 and 18, we are going to learn three important truths, three things that you need to know about feeding the ox. The first is how to identify your ox. Secondly, how to feed your ox. And third, the justification for why you should feed your ox. So look at the beginning of verse 17. Notice what the text says. The elders who rule well. Now we have learned about elders. We know about elders. But some of you who maybe weren't here before and uh, didn't hear those messages, I'd like to just take a minute again to show you that there is no difference between the guy who preaches and teaches and other elders as far as being shepherds or overseers. They're all one and the same thing. We a lot of times make these distinctions, but the Bible does not make that distinction. I am not Pastor Hughes and then other people are elders. If you're an elder, you are a pastor. If you are an elder, you are an overseer. And so that's what the Word of God teaches. Because of giftedness and training and desires, some are supported within the group of elder, pastor, overseers. But there is no distinction as far as office. When you look at the New Testament, you find out there are two different offices. The offices of elder and the offices of deacon. And now we're talking about elders, those specifically called shepherds or pastors or overseers in the Bible. If you have the King James Version, it'll call overseers bishops. So, as we come, we look at several texts. And the first text we want to look at to see that, that uh, an elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is a shepherd, is in Acts chapter 20. So turn there in your Bibles, and we'll just look at a few key texts here so you can see why um, there shouldn't be a distinction made between um, pastors and elders. They are the same thing. Look at verse 16 and 17. Paul is traveling back towards Jerusalem. And look at verse 16 of Acts 20. This is what it says. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul has an agenda. His agenda is to get to Jerusalem so he can celebrate Pentecost. Because if you're preaching the gospel, there is no greater opportunity to spread the gospel than to witness to people from all over the Mediterranean basin coming to Pentecost. This is the prime opportunity to preach the gospel, to have people come to Christ, and then they all disperse, and in their dispersing, they take the gospel with them. So that's why Paul wants to get there. It's not because he's a Jew and because he wants to, you know, worship like a Jew necessarily. It's because he wants to take that opportunity at the pilgrim feast where people come from all over to preach the gospel because people will be concentrated in Jerusalem at that time. And so he says this. He says that he doesn't want to spend time in Asia. 
Well, he's going to. He stops at Miletus, according to verse 17. What is that talking about? Well, it's talking about this. Paul planted the church at Ephesus and... And he taught there for three years. He had sent some of his best people there, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy. Later, um, Titus ends up going there. All these people go to Ephesus because it is such a strategic location. And he, all the people there are endeared to him. They love him. They have fallen in love with the Apostle Paul. And Paul knows that if he tries to go through there and make a, tri- a quick trip, what's going to happen? Oh, they're going to, you come to my house and stay a few days and stay with us. And and then he'll end up, what, missing the Pentecost. And so he goes to a city south of Ephesus, not too far away, and he calls for the elders, just the elders, to come because he wants to make sure that he encourages them to keep doing what he modeled while he was there ministering with them. He wants them to know the most primary things of the ministry, what they are to focus their attention on. And so instead of going by the church, he just calls for the elders. And look what verse 17 says. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders in the church. And then he goes on to explain all sorts of things, things he did, things he modeled, priorities he had, ministry philosophy. And notice what he says in verse 28. As he's speaking to the elders, he says this. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, notice that if you are an elder, you have been made an overseer by the Holy Spirit. That is your divine commission. Then the text goes on among which or to shepherd. This is this is he says among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. That is your Task to be a shepherd. That word can also be translated pastor, which God purchased with his own blood. The church of God, which uh, of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now think about this. If you are an elder, you are an overseer and you are to be shepherding or pastoring one and the same thing. No difference. Turn back to first Timothy chapter three. And we'll compare 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 with Titus chapter 1, verse 9. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, this is right before Paul discusses the qualifications. He says this, It is a trustworthy statement, verse 1 of chapter 3, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer. Notice it is an office. And that office, office is an office of an overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. There is labor involved in being an elder. An overseer then must be, and then he goes on to list the qualifications. We've seen this before. But turn to Titus chapter 1, a couple books over. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, just as Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus, Titus was a pastor at Crete. And these Three epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are called pastoral epistles because Paul writes to them to tell them how they are to structure the church and the priorities of the church. Look what he says in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. Notice that when we looked in Acts, he called for the elders. Here, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, plurality of leadership, plurality of leadership. 
And he says, appoint these elders in every city. And then he lists the same qualifications as appear in 1 Timothy 3 for an overseer. Why does he do that? Because an overseer is an elder. And an elder is an overseer. They are one and the same thing. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Peter, and this will be the last verse we use to show that they are one and the same thing. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and the witness of the suffering of Christ. Notice Peter even calls himself an elder. And partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed to what? Shepherd the flock of God among you. Notice this word shepherd could also be pastor. Pastor the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight. That is, be an overseer. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Not according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Notice, elders are shepherds are overseers. So there is no distinction. So back in our text, when Paul says the elders who rule well, he's talking about elders who have special giftedness and desires and they manifest an excellence in certain areas. And he says they are to be considered worthy of double honor. The word rule is a is an Active participle, which means they are to always be ruling, and the qualifier is well. That word well is the word kalos. It's also translated good. It is the same word we saw in relationship to widows who were to be examples of good works. It is the same word that we translated excellent when we looked at the qualities of an excellent minister of Jesus Christ. It's a word that means very good or very high quality. And it is good of an intrinsic nature, good that can be seen. So he says, if you see elders and those elders are ruling, which means to lead or guide or give oversight or preside over, and they're doing it in a very excellent way, they are to be considered worthy of double honor. And he says, especially, and he throws in a superlative, which means, and of first importance, or of most importance, or of absolute necessity, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. Now, teaching and preaching are similar. A lot of people think of them as the same thing, um, but they're really different. Teaching is one-way communication, like what I'm doing right now. I will, I preach to you. Preaching is when a man prepares a from the text of the Word of God, a message that God has given him from the text and he gives it to the people as God's voice to the people so that the people know what God wants them to do. It is confrontive, it is exhortive, and it is encouraging people to obey and submit to the Word of God. Teaching is a different way of doing the same thing where the teacher, through dialogue and question and answer, 
asks questions, and leads people to see the meaning and application of the text of the Word of God, like you would have maybe in a Bible study, some sort of dialogue format. Those are really the two different things that are to distinguish this special group. These elders who especially do those two things are to be seen as oxen who need to be supported financially in the ministry. And that's what we're going to see in our next point. But the whole point is this. When you look at the scriptures and you see what God inspired Paul to write to Timothy and Titus in the three pastoral epistles, the number one theme is teaching and preaching. Out of all the tasks that God could have exhorted those men to do as leaders in the church and to teach the people how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, teaching and preaching are at the top of the pile. Why? Why isn't it something else? Well, this is why. Because you can't be saved without the preaching of the word. Because you can't grow in sanctification without the preaching of the word. You can't get to know God. You can't worship correctly or obey correctly or avoid sin or know anything about God or his will for your life if you do not have a constant and never-ending stream of teaching and preaching in your life. It is the method by which God has made the church and caused it to grow in holiness so that it's the church that will bring glory and honor to his name. The church today as a whole needs to learn this truth all over again. You go to most churches today and the thing that is constantly commanded in the pastoral epistles is set aside. And instead, things that are optional, things that are not commanded, things that God doesn't even mention once in his word are given prominence. This is one of the deception of Satan's and this church is lying into it. And if a church does not constantly teach the word of God and preach the word of God and just instill God's truth into its life blood so the church always has God's word flowing through its veins, the church then becomes very anemic and sick and miserable. Teaching and preaching are the number one priority of the church. And if you go to a church that is set aside teaching and preaching, I hear, I hear people say things like, well, their teaching isn't very good over there, but their worship is good. No, it's not. If you do not have good teaching, you do not have good worship. Because the only way you can have good worship is through good teaching. You find a church where the pulpit is weak. You find a church that is worldly. A church where the people are entrenched in sin and comfortable in it. You find a church that is not doing evangelism. A church where people are not growing. A church that is not holy. A church that has no discernment. A church that is plagued with false teaching. A church that is tolerant of sin and wicked behavior and intolerant of truth. A church that is either dead or quickly dying. Teaching is what God wants to be done when the saints assemble. That is the primary thing we do. We try and be careful when we sing words. Why? Because the music, you can have all kinds of tunes, but you have to be careful of the words. Why? Because they teach. 
We read the scriptures. We pray about the scriptures. We preach the scriptures. Why all this emphasis on teaching and preaching in every way possible? Because that's what the word of God commands. And it is such an important thing that God wants people who are especially gifted in teaching and preaching to be freed up to do it full time so that the church will prosper. And so that's how you identify the ox. Now, how do you feed your ox? Look at verse 17. It says, they are to be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor. The word considered worthy might also be translated to be thought of as worthy or to judge to be deserving or to conclude that something is um, worthy to receive something. In this case, the church is to consider those who were well at preaching and teaching as worthy of double honor. Now, what does this word honor mean? Remember back in verse 3 of chapter 5 when we talked about what it meant to honor widows indeed? We know that all Christians are to honor each other. All widows are to be honored. But in this context, Paul uses honor in a special way to describe not only respect and the attitude of honor, but also of financial support. That's what it's talking about here. Here he also uses the multiplier double, double honor. Now, what does that mean? Well, some debate as to what this means. There's really a couple possible interpretations. One is, some people have said, it means to give honor such as respect, an attitude of honor, and honor such as pay. So that would be two different kinds of honor. The problem with this is, is that in chapter 5, verse 3, when it speaks of honoring widows, he means both, but doesn't say double honor. And that's in the near context. So that's probably not a good way to take it. Others have seen that it should, or believe that it means to have double honor, which would include both respect and financial support. Others see it as saying, no, what he's talking about is of the highest degree. They should have very high honor and very high financial support. Either one you can take. I think it's clear he's making a distinction here of a certain class of elders and says, these elders are to be doubly honored. Now, if you want to see where this is taught in the Bible, the best place to go is in 1 Corinthians 9. Turn there. 1 Corinthians 9. And of all the texts in the New Testament, there is no greater text on this subject than 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to read the first seven verses now. Later on, we'll come back and finish up um, the last seven verses. But in 1 Corinthians 9, let me just tell you what has happened in the church at Corinth. People have accused Paul of being a greedy money grubber, of being in the ministry for his own personal gain, to advance his own financial position, and basically they've accused him of being a con man and a huckster. And so this is what Paul says, starting in verse 1. Am I not free? The answer is yes. Am I not apostle? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes. Are you not my work in the Lord? Yes. If to others I am apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And the obvious answer is, of course. Of course. Paul, you can eat and drink. That's okay. 
Verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord Cephas and Cephas? Cephas being Peter. It's kind of hard on the Catholic Church, this verse. Peter had a wife. And what's interesting here is that, that it says the other apostles had a wife too. You know, a lot of times we think of the apostles, you know, walking around. And do you ever wonder, man, did they just abandon their wife? They just go off and do ministry as they're ministering around? This verse says the apostles took along their wife and their children. That, uh, that wasn't just, you know, the twelve following around Jesus or wandering around. That they took their wives with them. I mean, on a short journey, no, they wouldn't have to do that. But... As a normal habit, they wouldn't abandon. Christ wouldn't have them abandon their family. And just because they aren't mentioned, it doesn't mean they aren't there. Here he says, they have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the arrest of the apostles take along the believing wife and the brothers of the Lord, that is the half-brothers of Christ. Then he says in verse 6, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? You see, as an apostle... And as one in the gospel ministry, as one especially gifted to preach and teach the gospel, Paul had a right to either refrain from working and to have the church support him or to work in those cases where he thought it would advance the cause of the gospel. Now, the best thing would be for him to be able to preach the gospel and and teach the word of God full time. But in certain instances, which we're going to run in as we get in later on in this passage, there are times when working is best so as not to hinder the gospel. Because by telling the church to support you, it would uh, maybe hinder your evangelistic efforts. But from this one passage, these are principles that we take just from this text. There are six of them. One, those who work hard in the gospel ministry have a right to be supported by the church. Two, they have a right to get married and have their entire family taken care of by the church. Three, they have a right to do secular work as well if they believe it will enhance their ministry or a right not to do that. Four, just as soldiers don't serve at their expense, neither should elders who work hard at teaching and preaching. Five, just as farmers get to eat of the crops, they have labor to grow, so elders who work hard at teaching and preaching should be supported from their teaching and preaching ministries. And six, just as shepherds use milk from their flock, so uh, those who work hard at teaching and preaching should expect to be supported from those they shepherd. Then the text goes on for another seven verses. We'll look at those in a little minute, but the point is clear. You work hard at the gospel ministry, you deserve to be supported from the church. Now, let's look at a few other verses. And before we do, I just want you to know, I'm not trying to drop a hint here for a raise. Um, Calvary Bible Church does a great job here, and the elders need to be commended. Um, we do not have needs. We are amply supplied and supported, and the rest of the, the paid staff are doing fine, and uh, you are doing a great job. But I just want you to see the breadth of what the Scriptures teach in this area. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Galatians 6, verse 6. And notice what is said here. We see the same principle being taught in verse 6. In the, con- in the near context, he talks about uh, practicing church discipline and bearing one another's burdens and uh, 
trying to avoid being prideful, but to help others, and that to each one should carry his own load. And this is one of the ways that each believer carries their own load. Look at verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, you ask yourself, so what are good things? Well, anything that would be approved to God. Um, Some have tried to narrow this down and say, oh, it's these kinds of things, but all good things in the Greek means all good things. You know, I've had people give me all sorts of things and cards and plaques and notes and people pray for me. All those things are all good things. Some one of the best things you can do for um, your leaders and those who teach the Word of God to you is to apply the Word of God. That is the best thing, to see people growing in the Lord. That is one of the greatest joys and blessings of the ministry. Another example we might look at is in 1 Thessalonians. If you turn there, chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, this is another way that leaders or elders can be Honored, And what's great about this text, starting in verses 12, 12 and 13 of 1 Thessalonians 5, is that Paul mentions, but in different terminology, the same things he mentions in 1 Timothy 5, the text we are looking at. Notice what he says, starting in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Notice that he says diligently labor here, where in our text he says... Work hard. Then he goes on to say, um, where am I? Okay, here we are. And have charge over you in the Lord. Now there is the whole idea of ruling. In our text he says rule well. Here he says have charge over. That's what it means. And then he says who give you instruction. This would include what? Preaching and teaching. He says, and that you esteem them very highly. Here is the attitude of honor in love because of their work. There's the word work. Live in peace with one another. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 17. And this is the end of the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, this last chapter, is a nightmare to try and outline because he just goes everywhere. Talks about marriage and talks about this and that. And he just hops around and addresses a bunch of little extraneous, non-related topics. Um, But look at verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Here the author of Hebrews explains, one, that you can honor your leaders, your elders, by obeying them, by submitting to them, by obeying and submitting to them in such a way that it brings them joy. And to avoid obeying and submitting to them, or not obeying and not submitting, or doing it in a grudging manner or with bitterness, so that it becomes a grief for them and not profitable for you. And all of these texts tell the church to do the same thing. Honor those who are elders, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. Now, you might ask yourself, well, you know, is this kind of new? I mean, is this this something the Bible has always taught, or is this something that's just kind of new 
to the New Testament. Well, if you were to go through the Old Testament, you would find over and over again that the Levites and the priests were to be supported by the people they ministered to. Remember, the, Le- the tribe of Levi did not get a, a land inheritance. Their inheritance was the Lord. In other words, as people would come and worship the Lord, they received the monies and part of the sacrifices given to the Lord, and that's what supported them. That's how the Levites were supported. But let me just read one verse to you. This is a great verse. Now, this is from 2 Chronicles. Ezra wrote this verse talking about the law of Moses. Now, he wrote this verse after the exile, and this is what he said, 2 Chronicles 31, 4. Also, he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Why were they supported? So they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Sounds like Acts 6, doesn't it? When deacons were appointed so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and what? The ministry of the word. Sounds like our our passage also where Certain elders who have gifts in certain areas are to be doubly honored. Why? So they can devote themselves to preaching and teaching. The word preaching in 1 Timothy 5.17 is really in word. That is in the message and in the proclamation of the gospel. And so that is taught in the Old Testament. It's taught in the New Testament. It's what's to be done. Now, what is the justification for this? So, we know which oxen should be singled out as those who are to be supported by the church. And we have seen from these texts what it means to give double honor to. It means to doubly respect and doubly support. And then we see now the justification for why you should feed your ox. Look at verse 18. The text says... For the scripture says, that is the authority. You know, Paul being an apostle, if he wanted to, all he would have to do is just say something, right? He wouldn't need to say, well, now this is authoritative, you know, this is more authoritative. It's not, you know, if you have a red letter edition, what Jesus said isn't more, you know, scripture than the rest of the places. No, if it's in the Bible, it's scripture, it's authoritative. But if Paul wanted to appeal to somebody, the, the highest authority he could appeal to is who? God and the word of God. And that is what he does. So he says, the scripture says, and he quotes two different little illustrations. The first being from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, if you were to go to Deuteronomy and look at the context, which I always do whenever there's a quotation, you would find that before the text, he's talking about how to punish criminals then do not muzzle the ox while he is thrashing, and then following the laws of the kinsman redeemer. He's just giving different laws that they are to apply, but it seems kind of weird that as he's talking about people before and people after, that all of a sudden he gets into this ox thing. Why does he say that? Well, some have argued that maybe there was pagan practices where they would muzzle ox and they would work them really hard and, uh, and God saw that as cruel and so he was concerned that uh, they not do that. I'm sure that um, is true and it would be cruel to have an oxen, you know, treading all of this food, this yummy food and not being able to um, 
eat of that food. That would be like, you know, being a cook and not being able to taste. You know, you're just around food all the time, but you know, don't, don't, touch it, don't touch it. It's interesting how cooks never seem to eat, but they're never thin. And that's the kind of cook you want. So he says, don't muzzle the ox while he is thrashing. Now, there's a principle here, and the principle is this. That whenever you are benefited from someone or something, that someone or something is worthy of your support. That's all. That's all. If you're benefited by something, that someone or something is worthy of your support. You know, some of you have cars. Most of us do. And, you know, what do you do? Well, you buy the car. And what else do you do? You put gas in the car and oil in the car and you keep it maintained and you buy insurance for your car and cars are expensive, right? We put a lot of money into our car. Why? Because they benefit us. Now, wouldn't it be kind of foolish to say, well, you know, I want to save some money. So I'm going to quit putting gas and oil in my car. Your car is going to conk out on you. And in the same way, if you fail to feed the ox, he's going to conk out. If you fail to muzzle the ox all the time, he's going to die. And so, the Word of God says, don't muzzle the ox while he is threshing. The second illustration, if you look in the text, Paul gives us the illustration of the laborer. Now, the laborer would be somebody who would go out and harvest the the grain and tiling sheaves and bring them in. They didn't have tractors to do that. And so a laborer is now another group of people. But what's interesting is he says, the scripture says, quotes the Old Testament, and he quotes Luke 10, 7 and something Jesus said. The words of Jesus also being scripture, he quotes it, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And the point is just crystal clear. You have a laborer, you pay him. You have somebody who comes to your house and does some service, you pay him. Why? Because it's, you do it. It's right. I mean, you like to get paid at your job, don't you? I mean, what if your boss just said, you know, we're trying to save money this week. We're going to withhold your pay. Is that right? Keep working hard. <laughs> You'd be looking for another job. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 again. Now I want to get back to here just because the last part of this addresses this same text. We have a little divine interpretation from the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 9, we've already looked at the first seven verses, but look at verse 8 and following. Paul has just said all those things about his being supported and his right to be supported, and then he says this in verse 8. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Notice he appeals to the scriptures as the support for what he's teaching. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is thrashing. Now notice what he says here. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Well, is he? Well, Paul is saying, listen... Oxen are the minor point here. Get the big principle, which is what we talked about. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, oxen do not read the Old Testament. People do. So, 
What is he speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right because we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat food of the temple and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now Paul talks about not using his right. And remember we said you can, as a minister, choose to not receive support if you think it will help your ministry. When he went to Corinth and he was planting the church there and preaching the gospel for the first time, there were some new converts and he didn't say, hey, you need to start supporting me right now. No, that would have been unwise. They would have thought, you know, is this guy in it for the money? They hadn't grown in the Lord. They didn't know anything, you know, but the gospel. And so what Paul did is, is he chose to make tents and and work with his own hands while he taught them and established the church. But once a church was established, he had no problem receiving support from them. And a good example is in Philippians chapter 4. And you can read from 10 all the way down through 20, but I'm just going to read the heart of it in verses 15 through 18. Listen to what he says. To the Philippians, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. So he is commending the church because they gave to Paul and his ministry. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So Paul was actually ministering in Thessalonica, and it seems that he was choosing not to have the church there support him because he was doing planting work. And so the Philippians sent him gifts more than once so he would not have to work, but would not have to be supported by that church. It's like missionaries, we send them out and do the same thing. Then he says in verse 17, "...not that I seek the gift itself..." But I seek for the profit which it increases in your account. Why does it profit you? Because it's to obey the word of God. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It pleases God when the church obeys the commands to support those who are in the gospel ministry. So if you work for somebody, you should expect to be paid, and pastors should expect to be paid for their labor. The church is not giving them a gift. It's not doing them a favor. It's required of the church to support those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You have a right to be paid for doing that. So what have we learned from this text? Three things. First, the church is to identify their ox. Or oxen. You have somebody who's getting training, who has a desire, who's showing promise and teaching and preaching. That person is worthy to be supported. Now, you can't support everybody like that, but the church should consider them worthy of support. Secondly, the church is to feed their ox double honor. 
which we said either means double respect and double pay or the highest degree of respect and pay. Third, the church is to understand why their ox is to be fed. Because it's only right for the ox, while he is threshing, to be able to eat some of the grain under his feet. And it's only right for laborers to receive their wage. So, that's what we learned from these two verses. Great things. And we're coming up on some other greater things. What happens when an elder falls into sin? What happens when an elder is accused? What happens when an elder gets involved in money problems? Uh, things of, uh, that will really be practical in the ministry and to help you hold the elders accountable. And I just want you to know as a church, you only need to be commended in this area. As you go today, do not feel guilty. You're doing a great job. And all the oxen here appreciate everything we have from your hand and from the hand of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, and uh, we do want to thank you for, uh, for the elders here, especially the, those non-paid elders who have been so faithful to keep those who, like myself, are, are called to the full-time ministry. And Father, we just ask that you would continue to bless this church. And Father, we also pray for fathers today, that they would have a special day as Today is Father's Day, that their families would honor them and show kindness to them, and they would just have a great day of um, being with their families. And Father, we just thank you for what you've taught us from this text. We thank you for the obedience of this church, and pray that as we leave here today, we would be encouraged in this area. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.